The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. Not that long ago, um, Laura and I got a little frustrated because there was dirt uh, all over the kitchen floor. And that means somebody, one of our kids, inconsiderately took dirt from outside, maybe probably on their shoes and walked all over the house. And now it's probably spread all over the carpet. And so we got a little frustrated. We're like, all right, girls, which one of you, you know, is chopping dirt around the house? And so one of them found my boots. And daddy, the dirt's from your boots. Daniel likes wearing my shoes. And so he had put my boots on and then stomped all over my house. And now I'm stuck because I'm like, well, I, like, is it my fault? Is it Daniel? Let's beat him. You know, like, and, and here's the reality. I think a lot of times when we're pointing fingers at somebody else for chomping dirt around the house, the truth is it's usually me. And, and I've got a long list and I'm, I'm a little embarrassed, but you guys know I tend to just kind of air it out. So here it is. Uh, a few of the things that I am really embarrassed about. I've told the story, so I won't get in a length. If you haven't heard the stories, I'm sorry. Um, here it is. Like, so, I mean, when, when I was very young, we were playing church as a family. My brothers and I, we were playing church. So everybody said, oh, Thank you. Um, we were really sweet little kids. And so my older brothers wanted to take up the offering and I was the only one in the congregation. And so my, my number two brother was gonna shake me down for an offering and I said no. So he picked me up to throw me out of church and I bit him in the face. <laughs> so if you struggle with churches want to take up an offering, I get it, I'm with you. I mean, I doubt you could possibly have the trauma I have when it comes to churches trying to laugh and mock me. And then uh, some of you heard, probably right around the same season of life, uh, I became a co-conspirator in taking one of our cats and seeing what would happen if we threw it onto an electric fence and then, yeah. It landed at the same time with both its paws on the fence and its paws on the ground, and it got grounded and it just went and it never walked straight again. And then uh, several years ago, but while I was pastoring Lifehouse, uh, I took a group of guys, or we went, I went with a group of guys, we went golfing together, and there was this sign that said, keep car in gear, as you know, you're going down this sharp hill. And so I thought, hmm, what would happen if you take it out of gear? And uh, as me and my friend were in the car zipping down the exciting hill, uh, sharp turn, uh-oh. And I flipped the golf cart. I actually think that they still have a photo of me in the clubhouse and like, don't rent cars to this guy. And here's, here's why I'm telling you this story, because uh, first, I am, I am very aware that I am not perfect. It's usually my dirt on the floor. But here's what I also have become acutely aware of, that you don't just do things, you become what you've done. See, it wasn't just that I bit out my brother's tooth by biting him in the face. Uh, you become a face biter. I didn't, I didn't just co-conspire to shock a cat. I became a cat shocker. 
I didn't just flip a cart. I became a cart flipper. And you and I, you know exactly what I mean because you still bear the guilt from the decisions and the behaviors and the thoughts you've had from the past that have become your present identity. And as a result, you carry an overwhelming burden of shame and guilt and condemnation. You drag it with you. You carry it on your back like a sack and it wears you down. It's your burden. You are what you've done. And if you're like me, I mean, I can genuinely remember after we shocked the cat that for the first time in my life, I became um, brutally aware that I didn't just do something bad, but I was someone bad. And so, I mean, my parents made us go to church, but now I needed to go to church. And I didn't just have to pray, I was desperate to pray. And so when you clap, I clapped as loud as I could. I mean, if this will make God listen to me, by all means, I'll clap as loud as I can. And if, if raising your hand will like somehow get God's attention, then by all means, God help. And so maybe you're like me and you've gone to church just because you thought maybe going to church would make you better. Or maybe you pray because you thought if you pray harder or pray longer, it'll impress God. Or maybe you've started to give because you hope that by giving you will get something from God. And what I quickly realized though was no matter how hard I prayed or how high I raised my hands or how loud I clapped or how much I confessed, or no matter what I said or did to God, it didn't make me feel better. In fact, what I, what I really felt was worse because I realized that none of that would, could ever make me good enough. And what I started to feel was that Jesus was disappointed in me. Maybe you've heard those words in your ear, not necessarily because you read it, but because you got this impression, maybe from the church, maybe from other Christians, that you have to look perfect and be perfect and never do anything imperfect or God will be disappointed in you and he is a judge that wants to drop his gavel on your life and crush you like a little bug anytime and every time you do something wrong. And so you and I, we start to feel more and more condemned. Like I'm never gonna be good enough and no matter what I do or say, it's never gonna be enough to please God and so I am not enough and I am not good enough and you have heard those words echoing in your ear. You are not enough and you are not good enough and God is disappointed in you and God is ready to judge you. And in fact, you open up the teachings of Jesus and you find that statement. I'm gonna read it to you. Jesus is sitting on a hillside. There's, a, I mean, tens of thousands of people sitting on the hillside listening to him teach. And in that crowd of people, there are three different groups of highly religious leaders. One group is the Pharisees. They're the people who make up all the rules and they are super elite. I mean, they are the creme de la creme of the religious people. They're the best of the best. They're the elites. They, they not only set the rules, but they live by the rules and they condemn anyone who does it. And then you have the Sadducees. There's, they're another sect of um, religious Jewish followers and, 
one of the ways to understand who they are was just say their name, sad you see. They're sad because they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in the resurrection. And so they're just always, they're, like, they're the perpetual pessimists. And then you have the, the lawyers or the scribes. These are people that they are, all they do is just spend all day just rewriting the law and just writing it down and, and writing out the, their understanding of the law. And so sitting out in the crowd among the regular people are all of these religious people. And Jesus looks at them and he says this, and it's found in the gospel according to Matthew. This book is written by a guy who sat there that day. Now he was not on the inside of the religious elite. He was on the outside. He was one of those guys that didn't do it right. He was very imperfect, but he heard something that day that radically caught his attention. He became a follower of Jesus. And after Jesus' death and resurrection later, Matthew sat down and wrote out the story of the life and teachings of Jesus. It was passed down and we have it today. It's included in the Bible. And in, in the life and teachings of Jesus written by Matthew, on that day as Jesus taught, he captures this moment where Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness, living the right way, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is what you heard and this is what I heard when I read that. You can't get into heaven unless you are more perfect than these religious guys who are telling everyone how perfect they are and how you have to try to be more like them. And you're like, what? Jesus, unless your right way of living goes beyond the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. But here's what Jesus is actually saying. He's not just saying that you and I have to try harder to be good or that the Pharisees are not good. He is saying they're just, they're just not good enough. And he sets the standard. What he does is he goes like this. It's not just that you have to try really hard to follow all of the rules that religious people give you. It's not just that you have to do everything you're told to do in church. It's not just that you have to try to be better. Because even if you try to be better, like the best religious people are, even that won't be good enough. And so he raises the standard, not to being better, but to being perfect. Jesus says, unless you are perfect, you are not gonna get into heaven. Now that matches exactly what I feared. That I wasn't good enough and that because I was imperfect, God was disappointed in me and I have to try to be perfect in order to impress God, but I'm never going to be perfect. And so here is how you and I respond to that. We usually respond in one of two ways. First, God's standard of perfection is impossible and so it is the problem. And because it's the problem, we'll just ignore it. The problem is God, not us. And so we ignore God's standards and just go like this, there are no rules. God's rules are absurd and impossible. And so let's just live however we want and let's just do whatever we want. And the question there would be, how is that working for us? Or, right, so I said there are two ways. One is that God's 
standards are impossible and therefore the problem, or we carry a painful burden of shame and guilt because we are very aware that we are not good enough. And when you carry the painful burden of not being good enough, you try like me. You try really hard to be good enough. And that's called religion. And that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. He was talking to a bunch of really religious people about how hard they were trying to be good enough. And religion, the problem with religion is this. It demands us to make promises that we can't keep. It demands you to put on the pretense of piety that you can never measure up to. So you make promises to God in your attempt to be religious and say, God, I will be better. Or... That's your self-will. Or you kick into moral determination and you say, I must be better. And you try really hard to impress God and please God. But Jesus, in his teaching, was actually piggybacking on a little idea he had already started and opened his sermon with, which was this. And it's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and I'm going to read verse 6. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're blessed when you understand your deep imperfections and that you are bankrupt of perfection. For then and only then can you have the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 6, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt and you are bankrupt of perfection, then you become hungry for perfection. And he said, you're blessed when you hunger and thirst for right living, for that perfection, for then you will be filled. And what Jesus is saying is there is another way. I know you think the only way is through religion, but he says, I, I wanna give you a different way because religion doesn't work. You will try and try and try, but you'll never be good enough. No, because the, the answer to get into heaven is not to try to be better, but you've gotta be perfect, but no amount of good behavior will ever get rid of the bad behavior. No, no matter how many teeth I don't bite out, it's not gonna make up for the, teeth, the one tooth I did bite out. No matter how many cats I don't shock, it's not gonna make up for the fact that I did shock a cat. No matter how many golf carts I don't fly, Flip. You get the idea? It's not going to undo what I've already done. So what Jesus is offering and teaching and challenging us with, a challenge that transcends 2,000 years of history is this, and I want to encourage you to write this down, take notes, um, type this into your smartphone, put it onto social media, here it is. It's simply this. He's inviting his listeners and us today to experience grace. That's right, to experience grace. Jesus was not demanding people to try harder to be better or to be good enough. He was not saying if you listen to all the rules and you follow all the rules, then God will be really impressed with you and then he'll say, okay, you tried hard enough, now come on into heaven. No, what Jesus was communicating was that you must be perfect, but as a result, he was saying, you can't be perfect. But why? 
Why can't we be perfect? Here is why. And here is where he starts his sermon. And that is, blessed are people, blessed are people who are bankrupt in their spirit. They recognize that they are totally and utterly imperfect for then and only then can you inherit the kingdom of heaven. Here is Jesus' starting point. Here is kind of the thesis of his statement. He goes like this, you and, speaking to you and I, he goes, we will never be perfect. We are bankrupt. Why? Because at the core of who we are, we are driven by this desire called sin. Sin drives our every instinct. It drives our every decision. As a result, our thoughts, our words, our actions are sin-sabotaged. Sin is the core nature of who we are that pushes us away from God to disregard God and toward our own interests. It's, it's what makes us do what we want to do. It's what drives us to selfishness and self-serving and self-pleasing. Sin wrecks our lives. Sin leaves us uh, imperfect. Sin leaves us bankrupt spiritually. Sin is the reason that we are completely cut off from God. Sin not only wrecks our lives and wrecks relationship, but it cuts us off from relationship with God. So the end result of sin is this, that we're separated from God spiritually. We're cut off from God, and now our life is on a crash course with eternal judgment. And so Jesus looks in at our messed up, broken state, he goes like, this is, this is God's response to us. He does not condone our sin. He doesn't compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore the judgment we deserve. He doesn't dismiss it or disregard it. Here is God's response to people like you and me. Rather than dismissing it, he assumes it. Rather than ignoring our wrongdoing, he puts it on himself. He sees our imperfection and then gathers up our imperfection, puts it onto himself so that when Jesus came to earth, his express purpose and mission was to take the collective death sentence that we deserve, the, the accumulation of imperfection that has piled up on every one of our lives. For any one of you that's a cat shocker, a cart flipper, a tooth biter, he takes all of that and puts it on himself so that he bears our judgment, he carries our guilt, and he dies in our place. The death sentence we deserve, he dies. The eternal judgment we were facing, he faced on our behalf so that God is pleased when he looks down at you and I because when we believe in Jesus by faith, he no longer sees our long list of imperfections. He no longer sees you and I as a people driven by sin. You can't do anything to earn this or deserve it. That would be like planning your own Surprise party. You don't measure up. You're not good enough. You, you and I, we're totally imperfect. That's the shocking reality. But Jesus takes the shock. He absorbs the shame and guilt. He puts himself in our place and then offers us his 
perfection. Here is, this, is, this is the part I want to make sure you don't miss. You and I are utterly imperfect. Actually, we are far more imperfect than we could possibly imagine. And that's the bad news. But the good news is even better. Because when you become aware that you are spiritually bankrupt and you're willing to receive this gift of life through faith in Jesus Christ, you are shocked. I keep using that word because I want to make sure you don't miss it. You are shocked and surprised because his gift is better than your guilt. His gift is his perfection placed on you. Jesus took our imperfection carried it to the cross, died in our place, bore our shame and guilt, absorbed our eternal judgment, purchased our perfection through his death and the power of his resurrection so that when he rose from the dead, he defeated the power of sin, he conquered the grip of death on our lives, and he overcame eternal judgment so that anyone who believes in Jesus by faith is forgiven of their sins, is given new life and true life because God's spirit enters into our spirit. But then what Jesus does is he makes a deposit into our spiritual account. He, he writes a, a blank check and puts it into our spiritual being. And that, that blank check is his perfection, his goodness, which is called grace. The idea of grace is simply this. And we sing songs like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And the, what, what we're singing is this. We're, the word grace is this idea of God's favor, undeserved, unmerited favor deposited into the hearts and lives of people who are undeserving. But here is the thing. We're not just undeserving. We deserve worse. Meaning, it's not just that we don't deserve God's grace, what we do deserve is God's judgment. And so he is making a deposit, a blank check, into our spiritual accounts, even though we deserved judgment. And in place of the death and judgment and eternal guilt we were facing, Jesus wipes the slate clean, puts into our account his perfection by his grace, so that you and I can walk in the goodness of God, the grace of God. So now I want you to read, the next time you read uh, the, the writings of Jesus, the, the sermon of Jesus, I want you to read it something a little bit more like this. And I'm gonna read to you the opening of this sermon so that you can understand everything about what Jesus is saying is that you can receive grace from God. He wants to, I want you to experience grace. So here's what it really sounds like. The undeserved favor of God is for anyone who is bankrupt in spirit, for theirs is the riches of the kingdom of heaven. God's grace is on those who mourn over their spiritual bankruptcy, for they will be comforted. The undeserved favor of God makes you meek, means you restrain your strength, for then and only then will you inherit the earth. God's grace responds to those who are desperate, hungry, and thirsty for right living, and his undeserved favor satisfies you. God's grace makes you merciful so that then you will be shown mercy by that same grace. His grace makes you pour in, uh, pure in heart so you will see God. His favor is on you when you are persecuted for living rightly, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. You are favored when you are insulted, 
when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I want you to rejoice and celebrate, experience the surprise party because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There it is. That captures the idea of how Jesus opens his sermon. God is lavishing his love on you. God is pouring out his goodness in your life. God is gracious and kind and he is pouring into your life an abundance of his perfection. And so what do you do with this? Here is why I read all that. I wanna, I wanna capture it in this idea. Simply enjoy God's grace. I, I think as a, one of the problems is that because we don't understand God's grace, we tend to be a little too solemn. And if you actually understood that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was actually hanging there to prepare a surprise party for you. He was actually setting up a celebration. He was dying to give you life. He was absorbing your imperfections so that he can make you perfect. So that when you believe in Jesus by faith, it's like the confetti cannons go off, the balloons are filled with helium, everybody goes, surprise, and you are shocked to discover God's grace. And so it's time for us to learn to enjoy the grace of God, not just receive it, celebrate it. Our problem is that too often we just don't understand grace. We, here's what we think. We think, well, grace is this undeserved favor of God, which is what I said. Undeserved, meaning unearned, it's free. And because there's no such thing as a free lunch, I'm probably gonna owe God something at some point. And so we're always waiting for the other shoe to fall. We're always waiting for the little kind of like trick in the game because we know there's no such thing as a free lunch. Here is what I wanna flip it on you. It's not that grace is free. It wasn't, it's not unearned. It's just that you receive it freely and you can't earn it. Grace was paid for. Grace was earned. It was just earned by Jesus. It wasn't free. It cost Jesus everything. He absorbed the payment. He absorbed our judgment. He absorbed the wrath of God against sin. He paid the greatest price so that when he died, he cried out, it is finished. There's, that means there's nothing more you can do. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't pay for it. And when you understand that, and when I understand that I have been made perfect through faith in Jesus, there's nothing I can ever do to deserve it. There's nothing I'll ever do to earn it. I'll never be good enough to measure up to the perfect standard of God. Then I can begin to enjoy the grace of God. I can begin to celebrate the grace of God. You know what that also means? It means I can celebrate my imperfections. Oh, I don't mean flaunt it. I don't mean puff out your chest arrogantly the next time you sin and mess up, but you can stop hiding it. You can stop pretending that you have it all together. You can stop pretending that you're perfect. In fact, let me speak to, there's some of you I wanna to speak to real quick. Parents, stop acting like you're perfect in front of your children, you're not. And you're deceiving your kids because you're playing a game with them, making them think that Christianity is about managing sin. It's not. Christianity is about the fact that every one of us are not just imperfect, we are utterly imperfect. 
mom and dad, you are imperfect. And your kids need to see that in your imperfection, you have been made perfect by Jesus Christ, not because you're good enough, but because you have been forgiven and given new life. And we would see more of our children willing to follow Jesus if they didn't think that Christianity was about managing sin, but about enjoying grace. You have friends that don't know Jesus. I hope you have friends outside of the church that are far away from God. Maybe you brought someone with you today. Here's what I want, here's how I want you to change how you live. Don't try to put on an air that as a Christian you have it all together and you're perfect. The shocking truth is you're not. In fact, some of you are far more imperfect than your unchurched and unchristian friends. It's just that you have been, you've received the deposit of Jesus' perfection. So here's the point. Every time you try to earn your way to God or try to act like you have it all together, you are invalidating the grace of God and you are stamping on the cross of Jesus. You're saying, I don't need that. I can do it myself. I can be good enough on my own. And here's the reality, you can't. You and I need Jesus. We need the cross. We are imperfect. We are messed up. My kids need to see daddy is messed up. Daddy is a sinner saved by a savior who gave him grace. And he is, he is made perfect in the eyes of God, but he is an imperfect person who is in the process of being perfected. And so every time I let them see my imperfection, I am showing them grace of God at work in my life. Your imperfections celebrate the grace of God. So then you go, well, then I should continue to sin. I should continue to be imperfect. And then the apostle Paul would say to you, do you sin so that grace can abound? God forbid. No, you missed the point. The point is that you are going to mess up. You are imperfect. In your imperfection, celebrate the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, and here's what will happen. And, and this is where Jesus, as he's explaining this point about grace, this is where he challenges us in Matthew chapter five, verse 23, and then he's gonna continue and explain, here it is. Therefore, if you are offering your gift on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to be judged, to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And the point Jesus is making is this. When you experience grace, because you're enjoying grace, you learn to extend grace. There it is, extend grace. You and I should extend grace to others. So Jesus is making this really strong point when he's talking about issues of conflict. He goes, when you have a problem with somebody, when you've offended someone else, that's the very moment when you and I need to learn how to extend grace. See, when we're in need of grace, grace is refreshing. But when we need to give grace, grace is disturbing. Oh, we like it when we're on the receiving end, but we despise it when we have to be on the giving end. Because if I've offended somebody, my pride keeps me 
from admitting my faults and going to them and saying, I am sorry, please forgive me. But Jesus is making a very strong point. When you have experienced grace, you enjoy grace, and then you go and extend grace. You give it away. So the two words, right? Enjoy and extend. Celebrate and ask for forgiveness. And so what does that look like? And how do you live this out in your life? He goes like this, you've been blessed to bless. You've been favored by God in order to share the wealth of God with others. Grace is most needed when it's least deserved. Maybe there's someone in your life right now, you feel like they don't deserve for me to go to them and be gracious. They don't deserve for me to go and ask for forgiveness. They've hurt me, they've wronged me. Follow. Grace is most needed when it's least deserved. That's the point. Grace is undeserved, it's unearned. And so you are offering to someone that least deserves it what they most need, which is the grace of God. How do you do this? I, I just wrote a couple quick thoughts. That means you have to be proactive when it comes to issues of conflict. That means you have to go to them rather than waiting for them to come to you. That's right. Conflict is an opportunity for growth. So the moment you sniff tension, go and deal with it quickly. It's an opportunity for you to grow and to extend grace. You are changed as you offer love and forgiveness and grace to others. It's as though you enjoy the grace of God more, the more you share it. And so learn to take responsibility. Understand that you are imperfect. Every time you try to prove to someone that you are not wrong, that you did nothing wrong, you are stamping on the cross of Christ. No, you and I are imperfect. So very often in issues of conflict, we're, we're probably mutual partners in pain. And so at the very least, we can acknowledge our part in the problem by going to them, forgive me. Here's where I've messed up. Here's where I'm in a place of wrong. Forgive me. And usually what you'll discover is that in conflict resolution, when you are willing to take responsibility, it disarms them and it brings reconciliation. And that is the point Jesus is making. Now, the challenge is here we are. We're, we're confronted with the words of Jesus. And how are you going to respond? Where are you at right now? in your own spiritual journey. Maybe you've been trying to be good enough. Maybe you've been using religion to impress God, thinking somehow you're gonna do enough good to weigh out the bad. But right now, you finally have come to a place where you go, Patrick, I hear you. I need to stop trying to be good enough. And I need to receive the grace of God. If that's where you're at, I wanna encourage you in this moment when you pray, Say, Jesus, I believe in you by faith. Forgive me of my sins and make me new. Others of you, you've been, you've been enjoying the grace of God, but you haven't been extending the grace of God, and it's time for you to change and step up and start to be a Jesus follower by being willing to share, share the wealth of Jesus. So here's what I'd like to I want to just give you a moment to pray. Just pause right now. Quiet your spirit. Jesus, what do I need to receive from you? Some of you, for the first time, you need to receive grace from God. Others of you, you need, to, you need to say, God, give me that grace to give it away. And now I want to pray over you. Jesus, we come desperately bankrupt in our imperfection. And what we're asking 
is that you would take what you have purchased on the cross and deposit it into our spiritual being so that we would be made perfect in your sight, so that we would receive your grace, your goodness, which then transforms us so we can become good to others. We believe in you by faith. Forgive us of sin and make us new. God, there are people right now that are responding there for the first time, receiving forgiveness, unearned, undeserved forgiveness because of what you did on the cross. Others, God, they are, they are responding to grace by you are, your spirit is showing them how they need to love others and extend grace. And so right now, God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts and show us that next step we need to make in enjoying and extending your grace. We ask this in your name. Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.